Today we come to number five in the seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John. And as you may recall, John's Gospel is the only one of the four Gospels that actually has these statements. But I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Some of the most important words in all of Scripture. But the Lord Jesus spoke those words. And the setting is always such a, an important, critical aspect. We, we Sometimes we'll take these passages and we'll look at them just in isolation, but there's always a very important context. And uh, as you'll see as we unpack this, this section of Scripture in John 11, it's, uh, the Lord really orchestrates uh, just beautiful, remarkable, powerful moments to reveal himself. And this is perhaps the apex of, of all of those. But um, thus far we've covered five, uh, four, pardon me, four, four I am statements. And they're actually listed for you in that second uh, line underneath the, um, on the first page. Uh, John 6, John 8. John 8.58 is not a, a statement that I've covered separately. That's where the Lord Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. We, we actually discussed that in terms of the preexistence, the eternality of Christ. Uh, but I, I'm not including that as one of the seven I am statements per se. But John 8.58 is, is listed there as one of those statements, but most commentators will say there's seven, and the, and the two that remain uh, after this one, John 14, 6, probably everyone sitting here today knows that one, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. And those are the, uh, that will conclude the, the seven I am statements, Lord willing. But, uh, but a bit of a brief overview. Um, this comes from Ligonier. Just uh, the, the setting, as I said before, is, is such an important dimension when we are going to understand what Jesus is doing. And he has just revealed himself as the door and as the good shepherd. And um, there are those who follow the, the shepherd and those who are, do not hear his voice and don't follow the shepherd. And uh, those who follow the shepherd are born again. Those are true believers. But there are those who simply don't respond to the, the voice of the shepherd. And those are the ones we need to pray for. Those are the ones we need to share the gospel with. But not everyone will respond to the voice of the shepherd. And uh, so he, he knows his own, and his own know him. And they respond to his voice. And uh, they do that because the Spirit of God has given them new hearts. And we're going to see an instance today when the Spirit of God clearly revealed uh, the Lord Jesus in all of his glory to one of uh, his favorite uh, ladies in, in church and uh, biblical history, Martha. Uh, sometimes I think uh, Martha takes a lesser light to Mary. Mary is the one that's described as sitting at Jesus' feet and, and setting a good example. And it is a good example to sit at Jesus' feet. But Martha, sometimes I don't think gets the... The, the attention, but she is a pivotal figure in what we're going to look at today, Martha is, so we'll, we'll see that as we go. But uh, as you can see, the, this second to the last paragraph on page one that's in bold, Jesus identifies himself with the very event of resurrection. This is an instance, and we'll look at this more detail, but Martha and Mary had sent a dispatch to Jesus saying, 
the one, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick, and uh, they wanted him to come right away. And he intentionally delayed two days, and we'll talk about why he did that. Uh, but when he came, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus calls on Lazarus to come up forth, and he comes forth. And it's, this has to be one of the most dramatic moments uh, ever uh, in his ministry, because it, it was not an, an instance in isolation. There were mourners who had come, and there probably a significant crowd of, of those who had come to sympathize and empathize with the sisters in Bethany. Uh, and yet in front of all of them, Jesus loudly cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth in his grave clothes, and he was alive. He died again, Jesus, but, but, uh, but he came forth. He was raised literally from the dead in, in a very singular instance. But uh, this is one of those where we understand as we look at Jesus' statement and what took place that he not only brings forth resurrection, he is the life. He is the resurrection. And we'll, we'll unpack the significance of that statement. But why is that so important? Because without Jesus' resurrection, there is no resurrection. That's, that's really the essence of 1 Corinthians 15. There are those who say there is no resurrection from the dead. Those, the guys in the, the Friday morning Bible study, we're, we're literally going through this, this exact passage. We, we touched on it this last Friday morning at 6. But uh, if, if there is no resurrection, then, then we have no hope. And Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus raised himself. He was raised. He ascended sits at the right hand of the Father. And because Jesus was raised and is, is now reigning in, in heaven, we will be resurrected if we're in Christ. And, and so that's, it's, it's of pivotal importance. It is one of those indispensable truths. It's one of those elements that, that we recite when we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection. So it's, it's one of those absolutely critical times. And, and this is one of the most dramatic, if not the most dramatic times in all of this, the, the miracles that Jesus performed. Page two. What's the setting? Let's, let's kind of briefly touch on this. John 10 marks the conclusion in John's gospel of Jesus' public ministry. Not the conclusion of his ministry, but simply his, what we would call his public ministry. He continued to minister, but the focus was very, very individualistic, and particularly when we get to John 13 through 17, which is often called the upper room discourse. That's when Jesus was with those with whom he was most close, his intimate disciples. But this was the end of his public ministry, and if you look in your scriptures at John 10, 39, um, there are, well, pardon me, you know, 39, the scripture says, they were seeking again to seize him, and he, uh, he eluded their grasp. The, the opposition, the hate-filled opposition to Jesus as the Messiah was just reaching an apex. And, and Jesus was not afraid of that. He was not fearful of that, but simply his time had not yet come. And, and you, you find that expression often used. He was in absolute control of the timing. He was never a victim of the timing. He was always masterfully in complete charge of the timing, and he knew what he had to do and when he had to do it. But his time had not yet come. They, they were intent on murdering Jesus, but his time had not yet come. John 11 and 12 mark a transition to his passion, as we sometimes call it, which is John 13 through 21. And John 11 finds itself geographically in what we would call the Transjordan area. 
specifically an area called Perea. And I've got a map, and I'm sorry for the microscopic you know, version that you've got there. It's, it's really better than any eye test that you probably have had. Uh, I had to work on it to kind of figure it out. But if you look at the top of the, the, the Dead Sea, you'll see a little circled area. That's Bethabara. Uh, and the scripture says when he was across the, the Jordan, he was in an area where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And if you want to know where that is, that's, you go to John chapter 1, verse 28, and it's identified as Bethabara. To the left of that, to the, to the pretty much due west of that area, which is Transjordan in Perea, you'll find Jerusalem, and then to the east of Jerusalem, you'll find Bethany. And Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were located. So it, the distance from Bethabara to Bethany is, is a, the one day's journey, and that's, that's significant simply because of the timing of what was taking place. But John 10, verse 40, says, He went away again beyond the Jordan, that's on the east side of the Jordan, to the place where John was first baptizing. John 1.28 will identify that for you. And he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. What did John say? Among many things, he said in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And he, he pointed his finger at, at Jesus. He said, I'm not the light, but I came to show you who the light is. I came to reveal Christ. And that was his mission as the forerunner. And he, he performed that, that ministry with great power and precision. And many believed in him there. So you have this juxtaposition of those who continue to believe, and yet you had the, the Jewish authorities who were in, intent, uh, fully intent on, on taking his life. And ultimately, in God's complete control, they thought they took his life, but he, no one took his life. He laid it down on his own. He, he, we've already talked about that. But he's in, in Bethabara and uh, in the Transjordan area. That's what we call the area to the east of the, the Jordan River. And the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's the, the synoptics is a term for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're of a different genre as gospel accounts. John is very different, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are organized in a very different fashion, but we call them the synoptics. Actually, if you wanted to read the sections that talk about how Jesus was ministering in the Transjordan area, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 17 are all records of, uh, of what was taking place uh, during his ministry in the Transjordan region. Well, this was a time of great opposition, uh, and if we go to page 3 in the notes, John 10:39, which I referenced just a moment earlier, specifically addresses that. They were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp again, again. Again, there was a constant drumbeat of opposition to Jesus, and the antipathy towards Jesus continued to mount. The hatred towards Jesus continued to mount. They had no room in their, their, their doctrine for, for the Messiah as he was revealed, and they hated him. And, they, they, and their full intent was to take him off the map. So John 11 actually marks this contrast. So you've got this backdrop of there were some who were believing, and yet you've got the Jewish authorities who were completely intent on murdering Jesus. And John 11 is that episode where Jesus, in the most pronounced way, in an absolutely dramatic, glorious way, reveals himself publicly before a crowd 
to be the Son of God. No question about it. No question about it. The, the authorities wanted to take Lazarus out of the scene because he was a witness to what took place. He was the beneficiary of, uh, of Jesus' miracle. But in John 11, you have this public demonstration of a miracle. He did other public miracles, but this was the, the, the time when he raised someone from the dead in a public setting in an absolutely glorious. We'll, we'll talk about the distinction of what took place. There were other miracles that, that Jesus performed that are recorded in the Gospel of John. The first one is in John 2. That's the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. That's the first recorded miracle, the sign. John uses this term simeon uh, for sign, and that literally means an attesting miracle. It means not just something like a flash of, of demonstration power, but something that was specifically designed to show that God was among them and, and to, to attest to his divinity. It, it was a very specific term that was used to say, this is Jesus putting on display his divinity. And John 2 is that first where he turned water into wine. John 4, healing the official's son. John 5, restoring an impotent man. John 6, multiplying the loaves and the fishes. And John 6, again, walking on water. This is a setting when we first saw in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. These multiplying the loaves and fishes and walking on water was the, the instance that immediately preceded the first I am statement, I am the bread of life. And there were those who were following him because they'd been fed. And he, he took the, the two fish and the five loaves and, and he had multiplied them so that he could feed thousands and they, obviously it drew a crowd, and they were following him. And, and, but he said, that the bread that you're seeking will not result in eternal life. I am the bread that will result in eternal life. You have to partake of me. The other bread that you're having will last for a while. It will feed your, your body for a while. I will feed your soul for all eternity. So these two miracles in John 6 are the immediate precursors to the uh, I am the bread of life. And then John 9, healing the man born blind was a precursor to I am the light of the world. So you have this juxtaposition of blindness, which not only physical with the man who was blind, but you also saw spiritual blindness in that, that immediate uh, episode of those who were taking great issue and umbrage with Jesus because he did what? He healed someone on the Sabbath. And so that disqualified him. That was just one more point on their, their list of why he's not the Messiah. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah because he healed someone on the, on the Sabbath. But you have this juxtaposition of blindness, physical blindness, and the very tragic blindness of those who rejected Jesus and they were opposed to him in the most vitriolic way. There were 37 re recorded miracles in the, in the scriptures and you can find them categorized in a number of ways, um, but you can, you can see the way. But there were a number of them, of course, that involved raising someone from the dead. John 11 with Lazarus is not the only instance of Jesus raising someone from the dead. But it's a notable and very distinct episode of him raising someone from the dead. Luke, Luke records two of these. In Luke 7, Jesus raised the widow's son. And in Luke 8, he raised Jairus' daughter. What's different, and it's not to be missed, this is not an insignificant differentiation, in those cases with the widow's son and with the raising of Jairus' daughter, the person who died had just died. 
And, and so death is death, we, we get that. But there was, to, to say someone has been in the tomb for four days was, was of a radically different nature. And it was a much more public demonstration in John 11 than what you see in Luke 7. Not to minimize the raising someone from the dead, that's an act, that's a miracle by anybody's estimation, but John 11 falls in an entirely different class in terms of its magnitude and its magnificence. And that's the point in this last instance where he had been in the tomb for four days. There was, at least in, in Jewish thinking, there's this episode where there was, during the first few days, the angels continued to go back and forth and deal with the dead. And again, dead people are dead people, but someone who'd been in the, in the tomb for four days was beyond any expectation whatsoever of anybody being able to raise them from the dead. They, they knew that Jesus had raised people from the dead before, but that was almost immediately after the person had died. This guy, Lazarus, he, he was beyond, and from a human standpoint, I'm not even sure Jesus could do it. It was probably the way they were thinking. But Martha, she knew that he could do whatever he wanted to do. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go, go along. There's a, a quote by Jason Halopoulos. I've, I've quoted him earlier on the top of page four. And, and it's echoed by J.C. Ryle and a number of other commentators that John 11 is one of the, the, the most singular instances in, in all of Scripture. It's, it's so familiar. There are very few readers of the Scripture that are not familiar to some extent with the raising of Lazarus. We, we've all heard of the raising of Lazarus. And the text is, is very self-explanatory. But uh, he makes a comment. It's an account many know. And even those who have a cursory knowledge of the Bible know this, and rightfully so. It needs very little explanation. He goes on in his sermon. This is an excerpt. He says, but he literally said, but just to make, get your money's worth, I'm going to go ahead and cover it. That's what he said. But he said it's beautiful, clear, and monumental. So he felt obliged to, to go ahead and expound on this. And that's what we're doing. The, the text actually lays itself out. But there are points that need to be made, and, and Jason Halopoulos and any commentator will do that. They'll say, we, we need to dwell on some of these points and look at the fine points that are being made by, by, uh, by John. Well, what's happening? Let's, let's walk through the actual account. We'll, we'll unpack this step at a time. First, as I mentioned earlier, so Mary and Martha sent a messenger to Jesus. And uh, he was at Bethabara. They were in Bethany. Uh, Bethabara apparently also was known as Bethany in Perea, but to intervene because Jairus, uh, because Lazarus, pardon me, was in extremely poor shape physically. John 11, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So, The sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, take note, he whom you love is sick. There was this very intimate relationship that Jesus had with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were friends. He cared for them. This was not a stranger, and they knew that. They said, this is the one that you love. Come, intervene on his behalf. And this would have taken a day, so they they sent... The, the messenger over to, to Bethabara, where Jesus was, across the Jordan. We knew that from John 10. And um, he had already decided he was going to go to, to Judea, but the timing had to be exactly the right time. But we'll, we'll see that. But, so a day to make this trip. Just kind of stashed that away. So what does Jesus do? He takes his time. 
and I, and I say that reverently, I say that intentionally, he, he intentionally delayed. He, he, the scripture says that he, he, he stayed two days longer uh, after starting the journey to Bethany, John 11, verse 6 and 7. So when he heard that he was sick, so the messenger had come at the bequest of Martha and Mary because they wanted him to know that the one whom he loved was sick, extremely ill. And he stayed two days longer in the day where he was. And then after this, so you've got the, the record indicates he stayed two days longer. And then after this, this is a deliberate waiting time on Jesus' part. He said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And if you read the account, you'll see that his disciples said to him, are you sure? You know they want to take your life in Judea. You know that they're after you. They, they, he was, they were well aware that if he went to Judea, he was walking into the lion's den of opposition. There was no question about that. And one of the disciples said, well, we'll go and die with you. They, they, they knew that, that this was a, a place of intense opposition. But he was waiting. Jesus knew of Lazarus' condition. And he told them in advance what he was going to do. This was a, a very deliberate act on Jesus' part. And, and he does that because John 11 Starting at verse 4, when Jesus heard this, he said, and he's speaking to his disciples who were with him, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Jesus was in absolute control of what was taking place. And he was orchestrating all of this in such a way to demonstrate publicly that he is the Son of God before witnesses in the most profound miracle that he'd ever performed. Now, he'd performed a number of miracles, but this one was perhaps the most dramatic of all. But, but he said he's, his sickness is not to end in death. He, he knew what he would do, and he knew why he was waiting. In fact, Jesus knew that Lazarus had died, falling asleep. He says that, that, that he had fallen asleep, and, and that's a, a, a soft term. So today, when someone dies, we, we say someone has passed away, and, that, and that's a very respectful, somewhat compassionate way of expressing a painful reality in someone's life. A loved one has passed away. We, we will often say that, and I think it's entirely right to do that. It's a softened expression, and when, when they would use the term has gone asleep, that expression is used in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 11 and 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and typically refers to believers who will be raised, who, who, who died, but there's going to be a glorious outcome to what is going to happen in their lives. But he, he, he knew that he died. There's no question about it. Flip over to page 5. In verse 11, <clears throat> Of, uh, of John 11. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go, why? So that I may awaken him out of sleep. He used the same metaphor. He's fallen asleep, but guess what? I'm going to go wake him up. Well, the disciples, I, I would, I'm sure I would not be any more insightful than they were. I, I, sometimes we look at these responses and we say, what a boneheaded response. I, I, I'm sure I, I would not have been any better. I probably would have been way behind them in terms of understanding what's going on. I'm sure it would have. But the disciples said, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. He'll go wake him up. There's no urgency to this. They, they, again, keep in mind that they were saying, if you go to Judea, you're walking into a death trap. And from a human standpoint, they, they, were, they were very accurate in that assessment. 
They're after you. They have only one intent, and that's to kill you without a trial. So why do you want to go to Judea? And if he's, going to, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. So Jesus said to them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. It takes all the softness out of the description. Lazarus is dead. He knew that. He's waiting. He's over in, in the Transjordan area, and he's waiting to go. And he says, I'm glad for your sakes, this is speaking to his disciples, that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe, but let us go. That was the, that's the reason John wrote this gospel, you know that, so that, that, that you might believe, and that believing you might have eternal life. He says that in John 20, verse 31. But Jesus orchestrated all of this so that it would demonstrate that he's God, and that those who beheld his miracle would, be, would believe, and that they would have eternal life, and he would declare what a great God he is. So raising Lazarus, though, would be his first, this final sign, not for the final sign in John's gospel, revealing him as the life before he died and rose again. I mean, we've, we talked about the signs. There are other I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine in John um, 14 and John 15, respectively, but those aren't signs. This is a sign combined with an I am statement in a very radical fashion. So Jesus, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, and it was a cave. That's how they would construct these things. They would hollow out an area in the side of a, of a, a rocky area, or a stone was lying against it, and that was to keep predators from going in and, and, and taking the body. And Jesus said, remove the stone. That's a radical move. That stone was there for a reason. That's because the person behind that stone had been buried. It was gone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, she's, she's really the heroine in this thing, if I can use that term. She's the focal person in this whole episode, Martha. She says, Jeez, will there not be a stench, for he's been dead four days? By the time four days had passed, the, the bodily corruption had already set in, and it was, it was not a, a pretty scene. They did not embalm their people. The Jews did not do that. When they put spices, they was simply to ameliorate the, 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 the bodily odor. From, from a dead person. They, they, there was no intent to embalm the body. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And he, this is so fascinating. Verse 42, I, know, I knew that you always hear me, but why does he say it out loud? Why does he, but I, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. He's, he's praying out loud, and he's, he's interacting with the Father in a demonstrable fashion, not because the Father needed that, not that he needed to verbalize what he was saying, but so that other people would hear what he was doing. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, if you're standing in front of a tomb, and you cry out, Lazarus, come forth. That's, that's a, a high noon type episode. I mean, it, it, it either happens or it doesn't happen. Everybody's watching, right? I mean, they, you're putting yourself on display. You're saying, Lazarus, come forth. Can you imagine, just for conversation, what would have taken place if, if he had said, Lazarus, come forth, and, and there was this pause and nothing had taken place? That's not what happened because he knew what he would do. He knew he was going to raise him. 
And the man who had died, that's how he's described, again, just to emphasize the condition. This is a man who was dead, came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. Now, they didn't mummify their, their bodies. They didn't do that. It wasn't like one sarcophagus kind of situation. They would have the head was wrapped separately, and, and there was a napkin around the head, and then there was the, the bodily parts were wrapped. So he walks out, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Can you imagine this sight? I, I, I can't even picture it in my mind, but so you've got this stone rolled away. Lazarus has been in this tomb four days. Jesus calls out with this loud voice, command, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes a a formerly dead man in front of everybody, walking fully alive on his own. Nobody's helping him. He's probably stumbling a little bit because he's been wrapped up, but, but he's coming out on his own. And everybody watches this thing. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now that's the most radical miracle that you can imagine. And it's in front of a crowd. Because the friends of Mary and Martha had come over. And they would do that. One of the commentators said in the South, this was a a pastor who had functioned in the South. He said in the South when someone passes away, the, the the, the relatives are expected just to leave the door open. People will come in. You're expected. Lots of chairs. People will sit. They'll bring food. They'll just show up. And that's just part of the deal. He said that doesn't happen in every culture, but that was their culture. People would show up, and they were, they were mourners, and there was a lot of them. And they were friends. And, and they were all there, and they were all standing watching this episode take place. Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forward, bound hand and foot. And Jesus says, unwrap him, let him go. Well, earlier, just, to, just so we can understand, what was Martha's expectation? This, this was not her expectation. She, she knew that he could do it, but, but it's important that we understand what her view of resurrection was all about. And the scripture tells us that When she heard that Jesus was coming, in verse 20, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's not excoriating him. She's expressing confidence. She knew that he could do what he wanted to do because she goes on to say, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She didn't know why he waited. She had no idea why he waited. She knew that he could do whatever he wanted to do. But she said, if he'd been here, he would not have died. And Jesus responds with this very bold assertion, very direct assertion. And he says, your brother will rise again. This is prior to his declaration, Lazarus, come forth and roll the stone away, etc. And he said, your brother's going to rise again. Now, her understanding was rooted in the Old Testament. She, she was... If, if she were to fall in a camp, it would not be the Sadducees. The Sadducees were naturalists. They, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Even though the scripture clearly talks about the resurrection, the, the, the Sadducees were a priestly line. that, that they, they were anti-supernaturalists, if I can say that. And, and they, they, this would have been more of a Pharisee's understanding, not from a legalistic standpoint, but they knew the scriptures. And the scriptures very clearly talk about what resurrection is. And if you go to page 6, there's a number of passages in the Old Testament scriptures that she would probably have been familiar with. And she knew, to some extent, the doctrine of resurrection from the Old Testament. 
Job 19, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 26, Daniel 12. All of these passages refer specifically to resurrection. Job 19, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Old Testament scriptures, very clear. Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, and he will remove the reproach of the people From all the earth, the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 26, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to departed spirits. Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt, etc. These Old Testament scriptures. They would read the, the, the scriptures. They, they would regularly go through the scriptures when they would meet, the Jews would. And they, 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 these were familiar passages. She knew the Old Testament doctrine of the resurrection. But in Martha's mind, the resurrection was something in the distant future. It was not very clear in terms of the exact way it would work itself out. And Spurgeon says that uh, she looked upon the resurrection and the life as things that were to be in some dim and misty future. And, And Christ says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Not only do I get these things by prayer from God, but I am these things. He's going to explain resurrection to her in a radically different fashion than she understood. She knew there would be resurrection, but she thought it was sometime sort of in the dim and distant future. John Chrysostom in the fourth century, at the bottom of this excerpt, speaking of Jesus, he says, I am the great spring and source of all life, and whatever life anyone has, eternal, spiritual, physical, is all owing to me. All that are raised from the grave will be raised by me. All that are spiritually quickened are quickened by me. Separate from me, there is no life at all. Death came by Adam, life comes by me. So Jesus makes this declaration to her when she says, I, you know, I, I believe that he will rise again. Top of page 7, he, just to be specific, here's where he makes his pivotal statement. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is, again, prior to what took place where they, where they rolled away the tomb. But, I, but you need to understand what her expectation was. Otherwise, we can read this statement and we'll miss the impact of his, of his, uh, of his declaration. And Jesus asked her a very direct question. Do you believe this? And David Guzik says that Jesus challenged Martha not to debate or an intellectual assent, but to belief. And John Trapp, the English Puritan from the 17th century, he says, Jesus did not say, do you understand this? Now, the point that's being made, it's possible to understand something, but not believe it. Belief is conviction. Belief is you're you're going to the bank on this. You're, You're putting your life on the line for this. There are so many that have doctrinal knowledge, but they don't believe. And he was saying, I'm not asking you if you're familiar with this doctrine. I'm not asking you if this is something that you've got stashed away in your Bible notes somewhere. I'm saying, do you believe this? 
And then she says, and this is just beautiful, in verse 27, she says, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And the commentator Leon Morris says in the Greek, the I is emphatic. I have believed this. I can speak for myself. That's where all of us need to be. Can we say individually and personally, I have believed this. It's not just doctrinal knowledge. It's not something that I understand. I believe this. It's, it's almost identical to Peter's confession. Sometimes we'll look at Peter's confession as this great landmark event, and it was in Matthew 16. And that's when Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he's saying, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say this, some say that, some say, you know, various things. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And that's the most important question in all of Scripture that anybody has to answer for all eternity. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not just intellectually, not just in a theoretical fashion, but what's your belief? What's your conviction? And, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, almost identical to what Martha says. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The point he's making is you didn't come up with this on your own. This is called regeneration. This is called illumination. This is the Spirit of God has made you believe this. For anyone sitting here today who says, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm pinning my internal future on that, that Savior, you didn't come up with that on your own. The, the Lord God opened your heart and he created the gift of faith in you. It's a gift. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Faith is a gift. All of it is a gift. And that's the reason that, again, John wrote this, this wonderful gospel is these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is almost identical to Martha's confession, almost identical to Peter's confession. Why do you write this gospel? So that men and women and boys and girls who read this gospel will, if the Holy Spirit gives them new life, that they'll believe and they'll have eternal life. Well, Jesus is saying, top of page 8, he, he not only shows the way to life, John 6, people were, are you going to go away? He's talking to the disciples in the midst of all this opposition. Peter says to him, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You can show us the way to eternal life. He not only shows the way to eternal life, he not only gives life. John 4, this is the episode of the Samaritan woman. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, who is it says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He's the source of life. But not only does he show the way to life, not only give life, but he is the life. And we go all the way back to the prologue, the first opening verses of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And he goes on to say, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And John 5 Verse 26, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Joel Beakey says this, he says, Christ's words constitute the hope for all his believing people. 
and the last day will show how true his claim is. A believer will not experience death as the curse of the law against sin. All will die unless he returns first. Some will experience death as the curse, and some will experience death as a welcome home. But they will triumph, the ones who believe in him, as one alive to God, even in physical death. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about those, we, the perishable will put on imperishable, the mortal will put on immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory, but thanks, in verse 57, be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Next page, John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That doesn't mean they won't die physically. It just means that those who believe in him will not suffer the judgment of God. They will have eternal life. They will not suffer death as the judgment, the curse of sin. They will suffer death because it's a welcome home. Come, come home. You, you belong to me. And Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. When we talk about the first fruits, it's like the, the initial crop. And guess what? If, if Jesus was raised and he was, then guess what? His people will also be raised. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits for all believers. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ has been raised from the bed, the first fruits of those who were asleep. For since by a man came death, Adam, our federal head, we're all dead in sin because of Adam. By a man also came the resurrection from the dead, our second head, Jesus. For those who are believers are in Jesus Christ. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So the first fruits anticipate this glorious harvest. And when Jesus was talking to Martha and says, I am the resurrection and the life, he was talking about not only physical deliverance from the tomb, the bodily resurrection, but eternal life. Both dimensions, but his immediate focus in John 11 was, guess what? There's going to be a bodily resurrection. And the body is going to be reaped in an incorruptible fashion, in an immortal fashion the body will be raised again. David Guzik, second paragraph, me end. Jesus did not claim to have resurrection in life or understand the secrets about resurrection in life. He said dramatically that he is the resurrection and the life. To know Jesus is to know resurrection and life. To have Jesus is to have resurrection and life. I'm just going to go over this, this next page because... It's, it's important that we understand some of the implications of this on page 10 and 10 through 12, and I'm just going to hit the highlights here. J.C. Ryle, who's so helpful, makes a couple of very pertinent observations, and I'm just going to give this to you in summary fashion, and you can read it in a more in-depth fashion. But two takeaways from this whole episode in John 11, and that is the, the Scripture is, is so patently clear about the weakness of the understanding of believers. Martha was a believer. She said, I believe that you are the, the, the Son of God, Christ. She didn't understand all of her doctrine perfectly. She didn't understand perfectly what was going to take place. Jesus was showing her what was going to take place. We have sometimes shadowy understandings of these things, but, but the Scripture is very clear that there is this, according to J.C. Ryle, a, a, a mixture of grace and weakness to be found even in the hearts of true believers. That's so true. We, we are weak vessels, and, and we don't understand things with perfection. We're not expected to understand things with perfection. But we speak with the light that's been given to us. We we trust in him. But then the second point on page 11 is critical that we get this. 
This is why we're embarking on the study of Christ. It's, it's critical that what believers have is a clear view of Christ's person and his office and his power. And there's a, a couple of paragraphs down. He, he makes a comment. There's a matter here which deserves close attention of all true Christians. Many complain of a lack of sensible comfort in their, their religion, their faith. They don't feel the inward peace which they desire. Let them know that vague and indefinite views of Christ are too often the cause of their perplexities. They must try to see more clearly the great object on which their faith rests. They must grasp more firmly his love and his power towards those who believe and the riches that are laid up for them even now in this world. The point is, why, why do we study Christ? So that we can behold him, so that we can worship him with, with, with greater understanding and not only know about Christ, but to know Christ and to grasp with increasing fervor and intimacy who he is, what he has done, to love him more and more. And we can only love him more and more as we get to know him more. And so as we feast on who Christ is as he has revealed himself and we grasp as much as the scriptures enable us to understand God and all of his magnificence and the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, that will, that will give us strength in our, in our Christian walk. And that's, that's really the, the last point on page 12. J.C. Rao makes this comment, the root of a happy religion. What he's talking about, that's just his expression from the 1800s, the root of a solid, joyful, blessed faith is a clear, distinct, well-defined knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's where we started this study. If you go back and look at your notes on the introduction, the whole purpose of this study is so that we might behold Christ and love him more dearly and worship him more accurately and and live with a, a deeper, deeper understanding and appreciation for who he is, not only what he has done, but what he does for us now and how he intercedes for us and the beauty and beauty and glory of Christ. Years ago, I think I've mentioned this, uh, there was a, a conference at Puritan Seminary and, and the title grasped me and it grabbed me and, and the title was The Beauty and Glory of Christ. It was 10 or 11 years ago. <clears throat> and I went and I've never heard preaching any, any more powerful than that. It was all about Christ, the beauty and glory of Christ. The whole conference was all about the beauty and glory of Christ. And it just grabbed my heart. And, it, and, and that's what studying Christ will do. That's what Christology is, not just a, an academic doctrine, God forbid. It, it fuels our faith. It, it undergirds us when we're weak. It helps us when we're struggling. It builds our confidence in our Savior. We need to grasp this and make it clutch it and, and cling to Christ. The more we know him, the more we will be able to adore him and serve him with the sincerity of faith. So that's my prayer. It, he goes on to say, without a clear knowledge of Christ, we cannot expect to be established in the faith and steady in time of need. And believe me, we need to have a clear view of Christ when we're in a time of need. And it, when we grasp that, it will undergird us when we most need it, and he will never fail you. A solid grasp of Christ will never, ever fail you. It will always suffice. Father, we, 